Dream Clientele with Roger Chen. So my guest today is Kathleen Brightman. We met a few months back now uh, at a CB Insights event where the theme was blockchain. And I'm actually wearing CB Insights socks. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Supporting the brand. I'm not a shill or anything, but (laughs) glad to have you uh, on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I guess you are my resident blockchain expert. I should hope so. (laughs) And and so I'd like to spend this half hour uh, picking your brain a bit and having a conversation about blockchain, uh, different applications, different initiatives that are out, and uh, get your perspective on where this whole thing is headed. Absolutely. So do you think you could give us a bit of background on yourself and and your um, experience with blockchain? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a very unlikely candidate to be an expert in blockchain technology because I graduated in 2012 with a degree in philosophy. Hmm. So already, I'm I'm already cast aside as not your typical blockchain expert. Mm -hmm. At any rate, I graduated from school. I worked uh, for a year out out of a VC with some startups. And then I went to a hedge fund. Um, my time at said hedge fund was like the Hobbesian state of nature, nasty British in short. <laughs> um, after that, I went for two years and I worked at Accenture, which is a large management consulting conglomerate of sorts. It was at Accenture that I was really able to hone my expertise in, in blockchain technology, but I had been previously introduced to it through my husband, actually, who's a very avowed French engineer. He and I created a cryptocurrency together in 2014 called Tezos. And this was really just a a hobbyist project, um, but it taught me a lot about the fundamentals of the technology. Um, But to back it up, blockchain technology is what underlies the Bitcoin technology and the Bitcoin protocol. And so if you abstract that enough, you can get a lot of different interesting um, applications outside of cryptocurrencies. And so through this firsthand exposure, I was able to kind of abstract what the cryptocurrency component of it was. And now what's all the rage is using it for financial services transactions and capital markets applications. So my scant background in capital markets was actually quite useful (laughs) uh, for this particular use case, even though at Accenture, I really didn't specialize in any of the capital markets (laughs) (laughs) things. So in any case, in, in February of this past year, I started working at R3, which represents a consortium of, uh, of banks trying to use distributed ledger technology or blockchain technology for capital markets use cases. Yeah. And uh, there I, I work in our strategy department. Um, I sort of straddle the line between technology and uh, capital markets. Very cool. Um, so I'd love to, to jump into the financial applications and, and, and things outside of that, but maybe back up a little bit. And for those listening who maybe have some basic understanding of of blockchain but want to learn more, how does one become a blockchain expert? (laughs) Living with another blockchain expert is a very easy easy win. But really what I did was I I tried to sort of study the white papers. Like the original Satoshi. The original Satoshi, (laughs) yeah. Um, But also just reacquaint yourself with cryptography. There's a lot of online resources that are are very applicable. There's a Bitcoin course out of Princeton, which is phenomenal in terms of its uh, lucidity and accessibility. Mm -hmm. Is that an open course? Yep, all MOOCs. Uh, So that's that's a good first introduction. Download and play around with Eris, which is an open source uh, fork of Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Um, 
very accessible way to learn how smart contracts work, how the different layers of the technology work. Really just play around with it. And over time, you'll you'll come to have some sort of expertise. It may not be so, too super explicit. Like no one <laughs> sure. just sat down and told me exactly what I know. It's really a, a combination of talking to people, um, experimenting on my own, and uh, thinking about the problem and, and engaging with people who are a little skeptical yeah. and trying to sort of convince myself at the end of the day that it was worth knowing about. Very cool. Uh, and so you mentioned um, coming up with a, a digital currency of your own or, or that, that you and your husband uh, put together. Uh, how, how many owners of, of Tezos uh, <laughs> were there ultimately? <laughs> Zero to one. Um, so on the topic of digital currencies, I would love to get your thoughts on today's landscape of, of things. I guess starting with Bitcoin, you mentioned Ethereum there, but which is you know similar, but but also much more expansive, and and you know you haven't really heard as much uh, in the way of those other alternate coins lately, like uh, the the Dogecoin. Dogecoin, yeah. yes. And so, what are your thoughts on, on all that? Yeah, well, there was a bit of a Cambrian explosion of alt or. or non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies in about 2014, summer 2014, and the valuations were absolutely off the charts. You'd find one issuance and it'd be like tens of millions of dollars raised, and then you'd realize that it was basically Bitcoin plus a very minor, very minor adjustment, whether it was like a different voting pattern or a different consensus. Well, I guess consensus mechanism would be rather revolutionary, but it would be a very marginal, very marginal edit to, um, to Bitcoin's core code base. And the problem with that is that um, what you lose when you have a new alt currency is network effect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's like if every different cell phone was incompatible with a different model, you you would probably coalesce around Samsung or, or iPhones, so on and so forth, rather than having all these different areas <laughs> exchange goods. But that's in effect what happened um, with altcoins. They're kind of incompatible with one another. There's no, you know, liquid uh, way to tap into it. Sure. But given that there isn't any, um, none of these coins are institutionalized per se. Right. As far as some of these altcoins, you know, one may have slight advantages over the other, and then a new coin could come out potentially with, with slight advantages over that. And so... Uh, how how do you think you know Bitcoin remains defensible or relevant um, you know, towards the future? Well, Bitcoin already had a very high market cap by the time all these altcoins came out, so it was sort of the incumbent to beat. And actually, you know, it's interesting. Typically, the altcoins have uh, trailed Bitcoin's valuation very very strongly. Mm. Um, meaning, when Bitcoin goes up, they go up. There's a high correlation between the two, positive correlation between the two. Recently, there's been a decoupling between Ethereum's price, which has skyrocketed over the last two months or so, and Bitcoin, which has been quite stable at around $400 per Bitcoin. So it's an interesting game because Ethereum, I think, is the first you know altcoin or non-Bitcoin coin um, to actually have some really interesting innovations. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have native support of smart contracts, which is really the most interesting feature for me. I'm sort of a smart contracts buff of oh, sorts. Yeah? Uh, and so I, I find it to be a really interesting, it's an interesting pivoting point. Whereas uh, in 2014, it was just sort of copycats uh, coming into the scene, mm-hmm. um, whether it was like a slightly better marginal improvement. But Ethereum wasn't released then, it was just proposed back in 2014. So it's really gotcha. been interesting to watch. So, um, so can you get me a briefly uh, summarize the innovation behind Ethereum and then also, I guess there's this entity consensus which builds applications on top of Ethereum? 
Well, Ethereum is, is many things. So it's it's a network, but it's also like a scripting language. It's also, you know, a different uh, a different approach to um, consensus. So it's it's kind of you could think of it like Bitcoin, but ultimately it's quite different in its substance um, by virtue of the fact that it resolves some of the key issues with Bitcoin as it relates to functionality and ability to sort of be programmatically defined. Gotcha. Um, okay. And and what I mean by consensus, I mean um, consensus with a SYS at the end. Like oh yeah, those guys. With, yeah. yeah. So the interesting part of Ethereum is that you can sort of you can have this very robust network of things because you have this smart contract functionality. Mm-hmm. And so what consensus is doing, as far as I know, and I'm really not the best person to ask about this, <laughs> um, is they're trying to think of all different sorts of applications that can sit on top of Ethereum. And the reason you can do this is because it natively supports smart contracts. And so it's able to sort of interact with the scripting language in a very dynamic fashion. Gotcha. Um, there's fewer limitations, whereas Bitcoin, oftentimes the interesting parts of it, you have to offload to a third party because there's no native support of, of these interesting functions. Gotcha. So it has to be interpreted through a wrapper. And, and is Ethereum the thing that some of the banks and, and others are more uh, uh, seriously looking at? or Well, right now there's a lot of really easy ways to play around with this technology mm-hmm. using Ethereum. That's basically the bias right now. But Ethereum wasn't designed to be, you know, a settlement and clearing mechanism. It was designed to be a, crypto, a cryptocurrency right, like right. all the other ones. So there's some native limitations. It still runs on proof of work, though in a private instance you could you know, use whatever consensus mechanism you'd like. Gotcha. Okay. And um, and can you talk about Ripple and, and its place in this whole ecosystem? Well, Ripple has pivoted pretty significantly since it debuted as a cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. So Ripple's technically not run on a blockchain. It just uses a uh, very ambiguous ledger and consensus protocol. But what Ripple was designed to do is to create a bridge currency between all the other currencies in the world. So it makes a market effectively between all these different... All the real currencies. All the real currencies. Yeah. And uh, it creates a path for people. And basically what you're doing in Ripple is you're issuing like lines of, of debt between people to forge a path for people to exchange value. Okay. And so, so you view Ripple as a, a sort of separate sector, if you will, or separate at least from what we're talking about with blockchain and different applications there? In a very literal sense, they don't use the blocking mechanism, um, but they use very similar technology. Inspired by. Inspired by, yeah. Gotcha. So so what are some of the non-financial applications that people are talking about now with blockchain? So you mentioned smart contracts. Yeah. Uh, Could you elaborate on that a bit? Right, well, um, smart contracts are effectively uh, code event-driven event-driven contracts. Well, I guess every contract is event-driven. But in any case, it's code which is executed upon a certain event or fixed parameters which are established beforehand. So if the price of gold hits $10, I'm going to sell off all my silver. I don't, you know, it's basically an if-then statement which can be actualized on the blockchain as the blockchain is able to transfer value and ownership of different items. Mm -hmm. So that's the hype behind smart contracts. It's basically a way to program a lot of the route mechanisms that you want to execute using um, at present, like different parties, whether it's an escrow service, whether it's your broker, so on and so forth. So that's really the promise behind smart contracts in a a financial 
setting. But really what you can do is have really interesting micropayments and microtransactions in you know, a non-financial services institution context, for example. Gotcha. I can say, instead of having ads on this website, I want to pay Roger 10 cents every time I visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of facilitate that much more easily using a contract that would you know correspond to your IP address and so on and so forth. You could programmatically do that rather than going through Google and you know having advertisements on your website. Gotcha. So this would be, I guess, is the benefit of this, just so I understand, that it is a non-biased third-party recording mechanism so that you aren't reliant on any one particular uh, institution? Yeah, it basically takes out so-called middleman in a lot of transactions by mm-hmm. saying, we're going to make this agreement between the two of us, and instead of paying someone else to manage this exchange, I'm actually going to program something that automatically and passively does it. Gotcha. Okay. And, and so where does uh, where does R3 sit in all that we've just talked about? Sure. Well, R3 manages a consortium of 42 banks, mm-hmm. which are looking to use distributed ledger technology. Blockchains are a way to implement distributed ledgers in the capital markets ecosystem. So this can take a lot of different shapes and flavors, but R3 is really looking to help promote adoption across our members. Gotcha. Okay. And I guess from a bank's perspective, they see blockchain as something that is potentially disruptive and they'd like to get ahead of. Is that, uh, I guess, the, the position, um, would you say? You know, I think people people have that perspective, certainly. That's definitely represented among our members. Um, there's another part of it which just looks at their balance sheet and says, geez, we spent a lot of money on these route processes like AML and KYC, mm-hmm. anti-money laundering and New York customer, which costs us in the hundreds of millions of dollars every year. And really, why does it do that? Well, we're maintaining systems from the early 1990s uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> to do a process which is extraordinarily onerous and only getting more so. Couldn't there be a better way? And uh, I think that's really been the promise of, you know, so-called blockchain is to really make a lot of these route processes more efficient, cost effective and cryptographically assured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, from a venture perspective, fintech has always been something relatively difficult to it's difficult to penetrate banks, right, because of a lot of what you mentioned, some of these very uh, old technology that is still being used and and technology that's built on that technology and then there's these layers of things and so a lot of the investment into b2c fintech has been what's been you know very successful with peer-to-peer payments and and so forth catching on quite a bit yep i guess what i'm trying to well one thing that i've been thinking about is with b2b it seems like there are now interesting applications in the finance space with blockchain, but also trying to reconcile that with the, I think the narrative early on with Bitcoin and blockchain being something uh, almost anti-establishment and and trying to, you know, do, do you think there's some kind of backlash in the community uh, around that? Is that a complicated issue? Oh, yes. Well, there's a few, there's a, I'll just unwind a little bit of what you said, yeah, because sure. there's a lot, <laughs> lot going on there. All very good. So, yes. So the first sort of use case for blockchain technology was Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what is Bitcoin? Well, in effect, Bitcoin is a censorship resistant cryptocurrency, meaning it, it's optimized to be extremely difficult to shut down from a central authority. 
things such as anonymous consensus, uh, meaning you don't know who exactly validated the transaction, make it extremely tough for a government to shut something down. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the sort of insidious underbelly of, of, you know, the word blockchain is it's kind of powered by crazy anarchists, so on and so forth. <laughs> sure. And mind you, I'm very sympathetic to these anarchists, so I, I won't poo-poo them too much. But they were op- trying to optimize for one thing, and I think they did a very good job of that. And so, yes, Bitcoin is, is very much in its splendor when there's um, something going on where you can't necessarily trust the people around you. Mm-hmm. In a capital markets context, that is the opposite of what you'd want. You want to be very sure of who's doing what. You want to be able to enforce the law if someone tries to con you over or validate a transaction which is not valid by your uh, standards. Yeah. But I, re- I think the reason that the whole notion of blockchain caught on is actually very similar to the reason that Bitcoin caught on, which is to say people in very politically tense situations, whether it's you and your competitor, whether it's you and your you know broker, so on and so forth, want to establish a way for you to both be very sure of the credibility of your records. And Bitcoin does this on a much more politically motivated scale. You know, they want to resist government law enforcement, whether they're buying drugs or, you know, doing whatever else they want to do. Mm-hmm. No judgment again. Or ordering pizza. Or ordering pizza. But like, cash is just fine for pizza. I think <laughs> really, Bitcoin really thrives when you can't trust anyone. Mm-hmm. And in any case, I feel like pe- people in financial services may not be interested in the same uses as the people who are interested in Bitcoin. But I think they're still interested in the same thing that it gets to, which is sort of a foolproof ledger that everyone can trust. and assure on their own account. They don't have to trust someone else to keep their records for them. Everyone gets a copy. Everyone is privy to the rules that govern the system. And everyone can rely on the output of that. Gotcha. Okay. That that makes complete sense. And one of the things as I begin to learn more about the financial sector, there's all these regulations out there that prevent banks and financial institutions from working too closely together, but then oftentimes you you want them to come to consensus on some things to to move the industry forward, mm-hmm. and and I guess trying to figure out where where the line is actually drawn and how many people uh, are familiar or are aware of of different complicated entanglements between different entities in in the financial sector. It's all very confusing if you're familiar with. TCH, the clearinghouse, yep. they have a, a, a consortium of their own of a bunch of different banks that, and you know, they're for very good reason to provide you know settlement pathways and, and uh, sort of unified infrastructure. There's a subset of those banks that are in the TCH consortium that have formed their own consortium called Early Warning. If you're familiar with them, I'm not. <laughs> okay, so I guess. You know, half of the TCH banks have another consortium that has a, uh, a roadmap for different products that, strangely enough, are directly competitive with with TCH. And so, so it's all very confusing. And then now there's there's R three, of course, which is uh, even more banks. So many banks. <laughs> the shortlist is the banks we don't have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so ultimately, do you think it's, it's say, the U.S., and maybe this is too, too big of a question, but do, do you think this is the right way for the banking sector to, to work together? I think the Fed has taken a, a slightly distanced approach to a lot of the activity in the banking sector. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting that you asked that because I kind of wonder myself often. Yeah. Um, 
I think I think what we're we're really aiming for is you know network adoption of some sort of blockchain technology or distributed ledger technology to facilitate and like reasonably record these transactions with lower costs than exist today. Mm-hmm. And through that, we'll probably create, whether we intend to or not, some sort of news paradigm for how to for how to transact in a financial setting. Mm-hmm. So to that end, we're making a very, very direct uh, push, as is Ripple for that matter, to engage with the regulators because it's really their buy-in that we ultimately need. To your point, fintech isn't like any other industry. We can't exactly move fast and break things. Otherwise, gentlemen and windbreakers will come into our office <laughs> and we do not want that. So we're being very cautious. We're trying to figure out what are the sorts of things that are managed between banks right now that we could make as low-hanging fruit, which aren't exactly hit by regulatory burdens. It's more of a mere facilitation issue. Gotcha. And, and, and do you think, quote-unquote, tier two banks are, are the ones that maybe lose in the bigger picture because they don't get access, immediate access to the network um, you know, my hope is that it kind of winds up benefiting everyone. Our intention is to make our code base open source ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so we're definitely in the spirit of trying to trying to promote inclusion among everyone. I think there's a natural benefit to being a first adopter, but I think there's a really great saying that's out of Silicon Valley, which is the early word early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, um, I you think know, I've heard that one. Who's, who's to say that, you know, who's to say that a lot of what's coming up in quote unquote blockchain is actually a very good solution. Maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be an outright disaster. Maybe it won't be as cost effective as we want. Mm-hmm. I certainly have reason to believe that it's going to be a very good thing for people to go on to, but I don't think, I don't think it's so clear right now that it's necessarily the future that I would cast aside whatever banks haven't participated in our three. So if they are interested, they should email me. <laughs> oh, yeah? Okay. Yes, yes. Well, you heard it here first. But what, what about consumer applications of blockchain? Anything there of interest? Oh, well, I think the great part about, you know, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, whatever we want to call sort of the use cases, there's a lot of things that can make your life a lot easier. Certainly having your digital identity more easily maintained would make um, opening up a bank account much more easy. Mm-hmm. And there are other things too, like naturally if the cost of a transaction is lowered, you benefit as the end consumer because there will be people on the sell side, whether it's a financial services institution or a retailer um, thriving to get you that. I think it could be interesting for finding out the provenance of things and having um, you can verify things more easily. There's an interesting company in the space called Everledger, which is trying to work with the provenance of diamonds, for example. And I know that that's a very popular application and it's certainly a very fractured market. Mm. Arguably, you could have better markets for things just in general because you can unite more more variables in one network. So no, I think ultimately it's it's very promising when things can be digitized, when things can have lower transaction costs, when you can unite fractured markets. Gotcha. And um, is there an application of blockchain that you think is missing that that isn't out yet that you would be interested in seeing? Ooh, that's a good question. It's a good question because it's something that I'm, I'm quite I have contemplated doing as a company myself. But I really like um, weather insurance through mm. blockchain technology because um, I think it's something that could be done quite passively on the issuance side. And I actually had to buy weather insurance for my wedding and I found the market was very liquid 
yeah. very fractured and very inefficient at uh, setting prices. That's interesting. So, so uh, my only understanding of weather insurance is um, the Climate Corp. And, ah, yes. <laughs> and, and, and big ag. But it sound, I, I actually, I didn't even think about weather insurance for my wedding. So tell us more. <laughs> sure. Well, I got married in August um, in, in Paris. Oh. Three years ago. Um, I proposed in Paris. Oh, very. So did my husband. <laughs> He's French, but I love him anyway. In any case, so we, we had spent a considerable amount of money on our wedding. And I thought to myself, oh, geez, we're one shower away from this being a pretty unpleasant affair. Mm-hmm. It was primarily outside. And we looked at the stats and the probability of having um, rain on a given day in, in Paris in August was something like 3%. So it was pretty negligible. Um, but the markup when we asked for quotes from different insurers uh, was about an order of magnitude higher than that would reflect. Hmm. So we were trying to get insured for the amount of our wedding, but we wound up paying a much higher rate than we thought was, was reasonable. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is we had to fill out an online form. We had to have some poor associate email us back and forth, even though all of the information was publicly available. Mm-hmm. You certainly can't game the weather, <laughs> so you don't have to worry about claim fraud. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, pr- it's pretty easy to verify whether or not it rained based on uh, local weather forecast. So I just thought, hey, that's a pretty cool and simple thing to do. And so how does blockchain fit into that? Well, it's much easier to uh, to just automate a lot of these functions if you can have the model built in automatically and have contracts execute based on um, the aforementioned price. Gotcha. Okay, so so this is uh, something that that could be applicable to any form of uh, specialty insurance potentially. Potentially, but I like weather insurance because it's all public. Gotcha. That's interesting. And you have to worry about claim fraud again. Well, yeah. I mean, you do, but at the margin, right? Like, overwhelmingly, it's going to be pretty easy to verify. Mm-hmm. So, uh, surprisingly, we are already up to 28 minutes. Oh. Uh, so, that went by fast. Any uh, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I think there's a bit of fair amount that's been overpromised uh, in blockchain technology. People are writing posts about it every day, covering all the things it can possibly do or not do and still find things to do. And I think it's it's been very, very overblown what blockchains can do. I think they're good for a very narrow set of things. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're going to find is in the next six months or so, a lot of these proofs of concept, a lot of these proposals and, and cottage industries are going to kind of collapse upon themselves, not because they're bad or anything like that. It's, it's more like they've promised a little bit too much. And there's going to be a, a winter coming up. But, but that doesn't mitigate the, the value underneath all of that. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, Perfect. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about any of the projects that you're thinking about or, or working on, any way for them to do that? Well, my name is Kathleen Brightman, and I think I'm the only one in the world. So by all means, feel free to Google me and add me on LinkedIn if you'd like. And uh, we can take it from there. All right, there you have it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Supreme Clientele is all about having conversations with cool people in tech and entrepreneurship and elsewhere. If you'd like to follow us or if you'd like to be on the podcast, connect with me on Twitter at Roger B. Chen.